Julian Reith. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit, and this time we are back to talk about Designs for the Pluriverse by Arturo Escobar. Uh, usual trick, if you didn't catch the first episode, go back one, start from there. Otherwise, this one's not going to make a huge amount of sense. Um, in the first session, we only really covered the first chapter and, like, introduction. But in this one, we're going to kind of skim through the rest of the chapters and pick out the, the highlights, because um, there's, there's a lot of detail in here, and it, it would be redundant to go over every paragraph. Because, um, again, it has this holographic quality where the entire book is contained in every paragraph. Um, it's like a self-replicating machine in some ways. Yeah, if you are a designer of any kind, uh, which I assume many of you are, um, and you want to sort of like dig in, uh, then uh, please uh, go ahead and read the book. Uh, but uh, we, it will make for better podcasting if we do not uh, get in the weeds too much uh, with this. I think we're um, we're dedicated to making good radio, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so chapter two, elements for a cultural studies of design. Um, I found it to actually be pretty pretty good, right? Um, the the whole pitch here is that we kind of need to meld the humanities and social theory into uh, design education um, recursively, and each of them needs to inform the other. Um, which, yeah, I mean, probably that sounds like a thing that would work. Um, uh, I'm guessing, like, so Kyle, as an educator, um, how did this whole pad, uh, chapter strike you? Um, yeah, I think that uh, I think that sort of based on recent experience teaching designers, like game designers, or um, speaking to friends who have been teaching like engineers. Um, it is necessary that we like fold this stuff into design education because, um, you know, Escobar makes a valid point in sort of saying that like overemphasizing the division of labor and creating designers who have an extremely like myopic view of reality uh, is, is very destructive. Um, and so bringing in uh, these different practices, these different like processes of world making or of uh, world views um, and of, of like actually like including them in, you know, like working through cases instead of just like, giving ethics classes or something but like you know like let's 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 look at a broader situation in which you might be doing design work and let's think about this in an expansive uh non-dualistic sense uh that 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 pays attention to ontological nuance um i think is really valuable in terms of creating um, a design education that isn't going to just do more harm than good by creating like very powerful but narrow solutions to uh, problems. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, and this, um, yeah, and like, and also just for the listeners, like all this is kind of like this, um, this need to like have these like non-modern and like non-dualist conceptions of the world to um to save ourselves from doom, um, which is it's just it's shot through the entire book, um, so it's it's safe to assume it's in every section. Um, yeah, I, I found this to be really really quite compelling, right? Um, um, so like one of the first things he touches on is like 
So we, we get like design anthropology, in which we're slotting anthropology into design. Um, and it's like, what are the kind of examples here? It's like, um, cause this, because I'm not that familiar with the, the design world, I start to get a little bit lost here, but. Uh, so I have a part highlighted here. Um, yeah, it says, uh, uh, design anthropology is emerging as a methodology as much as a discourse. Design anthropology should not should thus not be seen merely as an applied field, although this clearly happens as well as in industrial or business anthropology. In fact, the thrust of the matter is the realization that contemporary critical designers combining anthropological style observation and speculation on emergent social practices are developing a distinct style of knowledge. This particular way of doing both anthropology and design is yielding new methods, such as ethnographic approaches to design contexts that make it possible to tack back and forth between action and reflection. Participatory design orientations, political preoccupations, including the decolonization of design practice, and ethical discussions about the roles of values in human-centered design. So, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of just like taking anthropological methods bringing them into design and then like modifying the methods according to the needs of design. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's uh, it's quite fabulous. There's, there's a lovely bit then a little bit later about, um, a notion of prototyping the social, uh, as a mean, which, which is, that's pretty, pretty sweet. Right. Like, um, um, and like an, a kind of experimental and open-ended, um, way of going about design, um, with, with these, these anthropological insights. Um, the thing it's contrasted then with is ethnography and design, um, which is the other way around where you're slotting design insights into anthropology, um, which, uh, let's see what I've got highlighted here. Um, which it, it kind of, it gets into really interesting notions of like, ethnography as a design practice, right? That you're kind of like using, yeah, like th thinking of doing the, doing ethnography as if you were doing design. Um, and it, it's into like, it, the stuff is actually really wonderful. Like um, these are some of the, the parts which the, the book is at its strongest, right? Where it's kind of making these wonderful connections, like um, doing this like stuff as like reflection in action, you know? The, d the design process is a like self-reflexive kind of loop and sort of like breaking down non-dual or, or sort of breaking down dualism in ethnographic practice by sort of using this like reflexive cybernetic like second order cybernetic perspective of like your embeddedness in the con uh, in the context the factors that are motivating and animating you as a researcher and the way that like you're not apart from what is being studied and they say like um uh this is quoting uh it's uh gat and ingold or two um ethnographers who are being quoted here um and they it says uh they argue that design in this sense does not transform the world it is rather part of the world's transforming itself so that's kind of like that second order cybernetic perspective right yeah Totally right. And there's like, um, there's another quote, I think, from the same people that like, uh, quote, to correspond with the world in short is not to describe it or to represent it, but to answer to it. Um, 
it's it's pretty good you know there's a lot of good stuff here um yeah, I, I've I've been trying to do this in my uh, content analysis work I'm doing for my PhD, and it's it's been interesting to sort of like work from like a non-dualistic process philosophy perspective while doing that. Um, uh, hopefully, it provides some valuable insights. I think it has so far, um, mm -hmm. but uh, we'll see what the reviewers think of it. I think that's it's one of the most like. It's one of the most practical things you can take away from the book, like these kind of like cybernetic insights of like, if you're going to do this well, and if you're if you're going to like repair our like separation from the world that we kind of have in in the way we we, we regard the world, then you're going to have to be designing with the world, like not like designing the world, but designing with it and designing in it. You kind of have to see yourself as embedded and not separated from the process. That's that's some of the best kind of stuff you can give someone. I think is like just 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 carry around with that, carry that around with you, and try and apply it when you can. Like try to try to work with the thing, uh, not against it, or not like on top of it. Yeah, and I, I think one of the, the the key things there is to like not um, not underestimate the intelligence of the world, right? Like, you know, if you see a behavior, don't just like out of hand be like oh yeah whatever i'm just going to fit that into my theoretical box as an analyst or as a designer uh maybe think that oh actually the world is doing something clever there uh i yeah you know um i often like go back to like uh birds but uh you know one thing is i was speaking to uh a farmer the other day here uh, in the Netherlands who's talking about how like you know if you put a ban on fishing um, in a in a watershed um, it doesn't necessarily help all birds right it might help some birds but the birds who are actually using the fishers uh, to stir up the fish and then and then capturing the fish that uh, the, that are being stirred up um, are going to suffer because of that. And, and it's only the assumption that like, oh no, like the birds are just like unintelligent entities that exist like as a result of human action um, and not like intelligent entities that can take advantage of situations in certain ways. Um, that, that gets you to that point of view that like, oh, protecting nature means like, you know, as hand off, hands off as possible, try to create this, this, this isolation hermetic seal where like, I don't know, somehow it does nature, uh, but not in a way that is like adaptive in any sense. Yeah, totally right. Um, that's a really good example because you, you do see that kind of like symbiotic kind of um, intelligent kind of associative kind of stuff all the time with um with animals right like um yeah like there's a reason the foxes go and raid raid my bins you know it's because i leave all the good stuff out there yeah 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 yes yes the, exactly like don't assume the world is an, an idiotic existence right mm -hmm. and i mean if i if i was to stop putting stuff out there when how are the foxes going to get burger king that way you know um, <laughs> um, yeah um 
The, ni- the next section is quite nice then, like the anthropology of design. So he's, he's mix- mixing up all the terms and all the combinations here. Um, in which he's, he's just laying into the design profession for like obliviousness, depoliticization, a kind of like naive attitude toward power. Um, and that like we really do need to address all these blind spots and recover a sense of politics and a sense of stakes um, in this profession. Um, yeah, like this uh, systematic placement of politics beyond the limits of the designer's frame uh, is one thing that he quotes this uh, Lucy Suchman saying, um, and 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 uh, that's yeah, that's exactly the sort of thing I was talking about from like um, my educational experience is like no, like we need to stop doing that. <laughs> that is like a massive problem. <laughs> Um, there's also like a, it's a point towards the back of the section, but like, um, that like, even if you kind of take, even if you repoliticize, um, people this way, or like, you know, they also have to realize that like, okay, okay, we, we finally convinced you that justice is good, but like justice requires participation. So like, there's this, there's these things that are often problematic where like, you know, people get activated and they go to this, this like do-gooder kind of stuff where they kind of like. Uh, they do like the example that's used here is like homeless activ- activism or whatever that like where people just kind of basically ignore the voices of homeless people and like their their perspectives like yeah like let's let's design the most clever and chic homeless shelter uh like cheap homeless shelter we possibly can without any reference to the context that it would actually be used in right and so the designer would need to as they put it here it requires an epistemic getting out of the way um to to really enact that kind of justice um yeah it's it's good stuff you know yeah, uh, it says uh, work being done with marginalized communities often ends up radicalizing participatory methods through interaction design research in which local knowledges and insights are genuinely taken as the starting point of the design process. Um, yep. And I think that uh, another thing there is that like if you if you sort of like inculcate that perspective into design students, um, you're also just like really setting them up to fail professionally <laughs> as well, because like you know, for example, I was thinking about uh, how um, I forget exactly what the rule is, but there's this there's this rule that's used in uh, North America for uh, setting the speed limit um, in, in pretty much everywhere, um, and it's just an incredibly asinine rule that has no real uh safety value to it it's very like it's a, it's like an incredibly noisy imprecise instrument for for setting a speed limit um and i was watching like a youtube video of somebody who is like talking up the the, the virtues of of dutch uh urban design uh with regard to like traffic control and stuff and and you know how it, things are so stupid back in canada in the u.s and and like they had he had like engineers from the US and, and and Canada being like like yeah we understand this is stupid but like there are a bunch of like political and material constraints on our job positions that prevent us from doing anything intelligent so like if you go in as like a new designer 
right? And you assume like, well, I will simply design the most optimal thing, or like, you know, it's a similar attitude you might have towards coding if you're if you're training computer science, right? Uh, that is not going to survive very long at all in actually working in your field. So, like, it's not just a matter of like social justice. It's also well, it's it's a matter of social justice in the sense also that you shouldn't create a ethos, a professional ethos in your students that are like, that is simultaneously like destructive to others, but also destructive to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's quite good. Um, the next section then um, gets into design in the development and humanitarian field, which does set up um, a kind of recurring theme for the rest of the book, right? That like, the modernization nightmare has had a particularly deleterious effect in the global south, right? Like, as the, all of this, um, you know, development and, you know, modernization of the rest of the world sort of stuff has been a huge and deliberate design project to uh, subjugate a lot of the world and uh, put it into some pretty bad pos uh, positions. Um, and, yeah, that can all be... The, th the thing you're assuming in here in particular is that, like, um, when you get to sort of design projects like the life straw, you know, like we're, we're going to design something that can help people have cleaner drinking water um, in the global south, all of this is quite fraught because on one level you'd, you'd like people to be much more conscious of like the, you know, material and political like histories that got to got people to this point, right? Like it's not like it's not like folks out in Africa really love not having, you know, clean drinking water or anything like that, you know, but like sometimes the only thing you can do is do this kind of minor palliative kind of care and these design projects often then happen under these extremely austere conditions where getting it right does kind of mean life or death for some people, um, even if you also accept that it's, um, you know, it, it's, you're still sort of participating in a basically colonial project to like you know profit off of this situation in one way while also while also saving their lives you know it's it's highly fraught and highly ambivalent you know yeah like you have a like there's a tender put out by the world bank or something to do this project and you submit your design proposal and you get the contract and you do the the, the job and um Maybe it saves people, maybe it doesn't, but like fundamentally it's still operating within the framework of the supposed benevolence of the World Bank. <laughs> and and it's it's all in terms of like innovation and design, you know, like and it's it, it is it is poverty alleviation of a sort, but it's you know, it has this kind of greasy Silicon Valley entrepreneurial kind of layer, you know, glommed onto it as well. Well, it, it, it's 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 like in uh, Capital, where you know Marx is talking about like simple reproduction and how the wage relation reproduces capitalism, even as it reproduces the worker. Right? Like it's not. It's like it's not necessarily killing the worker right away. There is a kind of sustenance that comes out of it, but at the same time, it's reproducing its own structure of domination and that's the kind of thing you get with like these world bank grants right the, the other example that's here is the um uh 
you know, em empowering poor women to become micro entrepreneurs through like micro loans and shit like that. And it's like, right. Which just feels like the sort of like precursor to the crypto boom. Mm -hmm. Oh Jesus. You're right. You know, in terms of like, in terms of like uh, massive, like financial scams. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Totally. Um, yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> you could probably get a paper out of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, it's still very much continuing the same kind of logic. Um, but I, I, there is also there is a point here that is is also like I mean, in in some cases like when basic sur basic survival is at stake, then like the design profession actually getting things right is also pretty good. But also, you know, even alongside those other problems, um, yeah, it's a, it's like, fraught, yeah, to say the least. It's a kind of like palliative care that is you know important and valuable but yeah i mean again it's it's like if you look at it from the perspective of the designer and the people who are who are receiving the aid um there are like sort of like ethical values there that are being fulfilled it's only when you look at it from like a structural perspective that you see that the the, the thing is actually evil Right. Like this is, yeah. So it, it, both things can be true at once. Mm -hmm. Right. And he's kind of imploring the design professional to, to consider it from that decolonial perspective um, and to, to kind of zoom out a little. Um, well, and it's also just like, you cannot, like we cannot take seriously the rhetoric of development anymore. Right. Like it's, it's not to say that like, you know, uh, like, poverty alleviation or like the standard of living as a concept is meaningless uh, uh, at this point but the notion that like the world is developing towards a standard set by the core countries of of like global capitalism um and that everybody's going to get there eventually um is patently absurd right because like the the core countries in capitalism like can't like there's no there's no material basis upon which we can uphold our way of life as a model anymore right like because we're we're just like committing collective suicide and fast forward so like there's no stability the sort of like the wizard of oz uh illusion um about the west uh just cannot be sustained anymore it's it's like yes maybe uh maybe uh like quote unquote developing countries are chasing that illusion or they're chasing the target of the western way of life but at the same time, like that is a moving target in the sense that like it's not developed, right? Like that word does not in any way usefully describe things here because that implies that like it's reached a kind of point of stasis or sustainability that simply doesn't exist. Like our societies are, are in like fast forward collapse. 
Yeah, or, or that it has a telos, right, that like is already known in advance. Like we, we can speak of a human being or a child developing because we basically know how they turn out usually, but um, but like societies and a global system doesn't, it doesn't have a body plan, you know, that you, you can predict like, a, you know, a, a child's development off of. Um, it doesn't have known stages, like it's not going to go go through puberty or anything like that, you know? Um, totally. Um, but in, in this you can definitely see the like, there's a sort of imaginary like design professional who might have been involved in all these kind of projects and in the 90s might have kind of sincerely believed that this developmental stuff might actually turn out uh, to be worthwhile and then is quite disillusioned by now, <laughs> you know, that like, um, this this isn't just this just isn't what it claims to be. Yeah, because these these institutions and um, these institutions and and discourses have a kind of like um, zombie existence where like they keep they keep going on despite like the foundations of their ideology being f like heavily undermined and. Uh, the only thing that really continues to exist is like the the material uh, relations of exploitation that underlie them. Um, so, like, you know, you can't really get into like working on like World Bank or Gates Foundation project projects without, at some level, accepting this discourse of developmentalism. But like, you know, it, it it's not actually a plausible discourse. <laughs> There's just the money behind it that keeps it going. <laughs> it's 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 bad stuff. Um, don't don't do any don't don't take any fucking you know stuff from the World Bank or the Gates Foundation, folks. Just just say no. Um, um, yeah, unless you really need it, right? <laughs> like, like he says in this book, is like, well, if if you're in this, if you're in a state where like that's the only lifeline you've got, then yeah, of course, take it. But don't don't believe the hype. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the the next bit is um, it actually gets into a pretty long thing that has a lot of dense stuff in it, but um. The section is headed uh, Political Ecology, Feminist Political Ecology, and the Emergence of Political Ontology. It's that latter term that's the more important one, really. Well, it's, you know, but he's going to get there via um, the political ecology. I, I guess to, to really summarize here, there's like, there were two main kind of currents um, or kind of points of emphasis in political ecology that all kind of gravitated around like the social production of nature and the cultural construction of nature, but then there's a kind of turn towards a more ontological and kind of like neo-materialist kind of take on things where um, the you start getting into like considerations for like non-humans and, and materiality um, and these 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 um, non-dualist kind of ways of thinking about these problems. Um, it's, it's ontological, it's holistic and, um, and wonderfully post-dualist. Where does he segue to then? I guess that's that's the kind of way to get into this kind of long couple of pages on relational thinking in general and how like fe feminist political ecology feeds into that, right? Like we're, we're, we're going to be all, all about this relational stuff, you know, de designing for reconnection, designing for this like relational way of being. Um, um, there's, there's a really, there's, a, there's a, a bit here I want to call out that's like... Um, 
Part of the contribution of this feminist political ecology was the realization that attachments to body, place, and nature have an ontological status. Um, and and then you know going back into like well all these all these feminist concerns pose challenges to design practice and and provide all these useful concepts um, for relational and kind of feminist design I guess you know a, a, rethink, a rethinking of design and again like this is what the chapter is about taking all this really good stuff from philosophy and the humanities and from anthropology and just injecting it into design education. Um, is it, actually, the funny thing about this book is it's often easy to lose the thread of what the point of a chapter is while getting into the weeds. Because I, I was in this page and I was like, oh, this, this, this is cool stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah this, this is about reinvigorating design education. Yes, 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 okay. You know, um, really, I, I guess, I, I don't know, is the... Um, you know, you sometimes re you read a book and it's like the author does a great job of like re-anchoring every section to like the main point they're trying to make. I think this book kind of doesn't do such a great job of that. It's a bit easier to get lost and finish a chapter and kind of forget what it was actually about, you know? Yes, 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 definitely. <laughs> but yeah, the overall point here is that we we get into this political ontology stuff, right? And we want to, our design practices to then be based on these insights. Yeah, um, exactly. Uh... I think that um, this this sort of like transitions into a discussion of uh, political ontology, right? Um, so sort of like bring in the decolonial perspective, the feminist perspective, the ecological perspective, and sort of like the idea of ontology as as political, um, informed by all of those perspectives, right? Um, yeah, uh, it says, uh, the emphasis is on worlds and ways of worlding in two senses. On the one hand, political ontology refers to the power-laden practices involved in bringing into being a particular world or ontology. On the other hand, it refers to a field of study that it focuses on the interrelations among worlds, including the conflicts that ensue as different ontologies strive to sustain their own existence in their interaction with other worlds. Um, so like cool uh i think it's good to acknowledge that like the idea of uh, like ontology as agonistic is like useful um but like when it starts talking about like the one world world here um like all of this stuff starts to sound very um sort of like i don't know uh yeah like we discussed last time about it sounds very similar to sort of rhetoric that like uh, Vladimir Putin uses to justify his his, his uh, invasion of, of Ukraine, right? It's like, oh, I'm, I'm working against the one world order kind of thing. And yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that stuff is far too, it's far too seductive, right? Like, and there's there's something very seductive about the, the argumentation here. But I, this is where it starts to lose me a little. Because like I, I think there is definitely something there's definitely something to that baseline thing of like yeah, the politics and ways of being and like the, just the way that power reconfigures the world and reconfigures our lives like it's, that's all good stuff. But when it gets to this kind of like I guess it's a, like a high level kind of clash of civilizations narrative, but on a meta level. Yeah, that was what it reminded me of. It reminded me a lot of Huntington actually, uh, where he he talks about. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, different ontologies strive to sustain their own existence and their interaction with other worlds. Uh, it should be emphasized that political ontology is situated as much within, uh, or oh, sorry, this is going on and on and on, but uh, gets back to it saying, um, uh, the notion of ontological struggles in this context signals a problematization of the universalizing ontology of the dominant forms of modernity, what John Law has descriptively called the one world world. Um, in addition, political ontology is intended to make visible the ontological dimension of the accumulation by dispossession that's going on in many parts of the world, etc., etc. Um, against the will to render the world one, political ontology inserts the importance of enhancing the pluriverse. And to this end, it also studies the conditions for the flourishing of the pluriverse. And it's like, yeah, like pluralism, nice, cool. But uh, given the way it's sort of like, oh yeah, there's like this one, I guess like for Huntington, it was, the whole thing was kind of premised on the idea that like, the one world world was an impossibility, right? Because like, oh, people are just like, you know, like, uh, like these uh, Chinese people just have like this culturally determined way of seeing things. And like, there, there is no way that they could be the same as us because, uh, you know, we're just like fundamentally different. And um, whereas this, it kind of accepts that like, yeah, one world world is a possibility. Um, but it's also uh, undesirable. Um, and I think we can agree it's undesirable in a sense, but like it matters in what sense it is, right? <laughs> yes, exactly right. And I, I have another kind of issue with it on that I, I, I have this, I think the premise might actually just be kind of wrong that like the, um, I, I think modernity being this like singular universalizing totalizing thing is its legitimation myth and i think it's largely a myth like i i think like if you go around and talk to people there's plenty of epistemic fragmentation within the bounds of modernity within the bounds of the supposed one world you know and i i think like I think I think that that's the story it tells itself. I think that that's the story power tells itself about modernity. You know that it, that it is totalizing and stuff. But like I think the view from below is usually very different. And that I mean also like I guess um, it reminds me of like what's that that Bruno Latour essay where he's like we have never actually been modern or something, where like in a sense like modernity. The, the, the narrative about the narrative modernity tells about itself has been true but only within narrow halls of power and like the scientific establishment but like we at large have never been modern that's what that kind of reminds me of of like I'm not totally sure that this whole one world world thing is even true you know which would possibly scupper a lot of the book's argumentation you know because if if the world that we have in all its fucked up glory is kind of plural in some ways, or it, it's at least not as monolithic as it's made out to be, then it troubles this distinction, this like dichotomy between the, the singular world and the, the glorious uplands of the pluriverse. Something there that's a little bit troubling. Yeah, sorry. Um, I think that uh, it's, it's, it's true that there is plurality within modernity, 
but there i think there are sort of like homogenizing dimensions of modernity that are kind of undeniable in a material sense like uh you know you could look at like plantation uh plantation agriculture um is definitely homogenizing um you could look at like the preference for beef <laughs> uh is definitely homogenizing you could look at um the you know uh like uh the wage relation um is homogenizing like there's a lot of dimensions of modernity that are homogenizing but that being said like it is also definitely the case that modernity engenders uh, variety within itself um like the idea of i guess like you know these sort of like 1970s dystopias of like what the future might look like where everybody is just wearing jumpsuits and it's all like exactly exactly the same culture everywhere um is like absurd because that is really taking the totalizing nature of modernity way too far. Um, yeah. Well, like it, it, that might actually be a good way to segue into like, um, I think part of this problem here is that like, we have a bit of an X, Y problem where the book sort of switches back and forth between like a sort of material kind of register of like the consequences of modernity and a cultural register. Yeah. And it, it's sort of like, uh, in, 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 by the end of it, there'll be a kind of um, exhortation to like a kind of spiritual reawakening, but it's phrased in terms of a tr traditionalist reawakening, which is this again this kind of flipping back and forth thing. And so, like, um, the the interesting thing about those dystopias is that like the the flattening effects that modernity evidently has materially are then projected into culture. But the evidence we have from actually living through it is that. Modernity, like capitalist modernity, is highly ambivalent to cultural constructs, and is it, it's like it, there's a couple of parameters it really wants to nail down in the material sphere, and it basically doesn't give a shit about the kind of cultural chaff around the sides. So that's kind of how we end up with this this mixed kind of thing, right? I think we're what we're zoning in on here is that like both of these things are true. Like there is a absolutely undeniable like mechanical homogenizing effect that this, this machine does but there is also plenty of epistemic fragmentation and like cultural fragmentation and this get this is where the buck runs into real trouble because it's basically pitching a kind of cultural it's pitching revolution in a cultural and epistemic register for for plurality for the sake of addressing uh, mechanical brut brutal hom homogenization in, in a material register and it's getting a bit mixed up all over the place and it leaves me really kind of not totally sure that that the, pr the whatever project is being proposed is even viable or would it even solve the problem so that, that's that's what i meant by the xy problem so i, I get, for, for like listeners that are not familiar it's this kind of thing where somebody goes on a like a programming forum or something and asks like how do i get the last three characters of a of a piece of text and you, you say oh well you just you use this function to get the last three characters like, why, why do you need the last three characters and then they say i need to get the file extension and that's when you go hold it and hold on there's no guarantee that the extension is the last three characters of the, the the you know the file right yes yes that's when you you have to correct the person because 
they have a, they, they've asked you a question of how to do something because they have a particular desire, but the the whole way they framed it is actually wrong. That like they actually wanted something else in the first place, and even if you even if you answered their question truthfully and correctly, you haven't actually helped them <laughs> because they they told you X but they actually meant Y. You know, there's an X Y mix up, and I have a feeling that there's a lot of this in this book basically. Yeah, and I I, I think it really comes down to this assumption that um, the problem with our ontology is one that is derived from abandoning tradition and reclaiming tradition is the solution to the problem. Right. And, 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 I don't think that that is really the case. Um, I think that it, it's like we can find inspirations in tradition that may help with this problem of uh, like specifically our learned insensitivity to our world um, and our practice of obliviously destroying it. Um, and in the pursuit of like the reproduction of our, our way of life, right? Um, there are things we could find in tradition that might help us sort of like defamiliarize the world and break us out of that. But there's no really like strong evidence that tradition is the solution to that problem, right? Like it, it's 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 one of many possible solutions and this is something that like escobar kind of lands on here and there in the book but then kind of like moves away from it again to refocus on traditionalism that bit is that kind of stuff is really frustrating he like sort of half gets it for like a sentence or two but then just diverges immediately um yeah and i i wanted one of our community members uh shared this uh this sort of like uh a piece of uh, history from uh, uh, Graeber and Wengro um, uh, just to kind of give it a, a sense of maybe what Escobar is talking about when he talks about like these positive traditional worlds um, because Escobar is not very good at explaining why they're good like beyond just sort of like a general ontological stance or thing or like reference to terms like community or connectedness or relationality or whatever. Um, so yeah, Graeber and Wengro, right. Um, uh, when forager bands gather into larger residential groups, these are not in any sense made up of a tight knit unit of closely related kin. In fact, primarily biological relations constitute on average a mere 10% of total membership. Most members are drawn from a much wider pool of individuals, many from quite far away, who may not even speak the same first languages. North Americans 500 years ago could travel from the shores of the Great Lakes to the Louisiana bayous and still find settlements speaking languages entirely unrelated to their own with members of their own bear, elk, or beaver clans who were obligated to host and feed them. For much of human history, ever diminishing proportions of people actually traveled, at least over long distances or very far from home, 
if we survey what happens over time, the scale in which social relations operate doesn't get bigger and bigger. It actually gets smaller and smaller. So when you like you sort of imagine a world like that where it's like, oh, OK, like you're not like you have affiliations, but you're not strongly tied down to a like resident kin group. You can move around. You have that freedom. You can cooperate with other people from other tribes or clans um, and in engage in material cooperation. You can, um, yeah, you have freedom of movement in a way that, like, we don't really even in modern times, unless we happen to come from, like, a country with a very powerful passport. Um, uh, that all sounds, like, uh, quite desirable. Um, now, whether or not that is, like, an accurate description of the way North America was 500 years ago, I don't really know. But, like, at least it's a description of, like, a life world that has like specific qualities as opposed to just like being quote unquote traditional and connected and related. Right. Which is what kind of what you always get with Escobar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a really, really good, um, really good way to concretize it. Um, and like th that sort of stuff about the, um, the, a lot of that stuff is the back part of this chapter. Then it's like, um, it, this is where he kind of the, the, the last section is titled, um, Design under ontological occupation, the political ontology of territorial struggles. That's where he really starts to lean on, like, yeah, those territorial struggles as, like, examples of, like, tradition resisting modernity and this sort of thing. And, like, um, you know, stuff, stuff like the, the ancestral mandate, you know, um, that, like, the, um, I don't know, like, it, it, it starts to lean pretty heavily into this kind of stuff, right? That, like, um, and the thing that stands out to me as well is a lot of it is, I don't know, like, I don't necessarily dispute much of the, like, content here, but it does feel like it's kind of cherry-picked, like, it's the most generous possible read of of traditionality, you know? It's, like, the most rosy possible interpretation, which I'm not totally sure would stand up to further scrutiny, but um, that's where he's sort of going with that, you know? That, like, it, it's basically that in, in order to do this kind of, like, ontological... In order to have this other way of being, you kind of have to be a people that is defending a territory, you know? Like, it has to have that, like, deeply rooted traditionality to it. Doesn't sound right exactly, you know? <laughs> um. Yes. Like, I think that, um, I mean, it's, it's very, uh, in a sense, like, quite at odds with what um, Braber and Wengro are describing there, right? Because, like, they... Um, they're really not talking about territoriality per se. It's more that like the world in the scenario they're presenting is one which isn't subject to the logic of like property attachments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not territorial in that sense. Yeah. It, it's, it's not territorial. Like it is, I, I guess you could say like certainly in that scenario there are people being territorial in the same way that like animals are territorial right like they defend resources uh they have places that they prefer but the connection of a specific people with a specific place um isn't really what's going on there right Absolutely right, and it's it's kind of vexing because 
that kind of um yeah, I mean, like, for, for the huge majority of human existence, we seem to have been wandering sort of people who weren't particularly attached to any particular place, you know? So this this whole place, this like, the, the stuff that Escobar emphasizes over and over again, the, like, rootedness in place, is a kind of much more recent aberration, it seems, in human evolution. And also, like, the thing that, the thing that, um, that, like, wandering loveliness that we get from Graeber and Wengrow, um, seems to, like, the reason that works, it seems to be there is some sort of universal ethics at work there, which is the kind of shift that Escobar despises, like, universality, and, like, is that, that's, that's, like, you know, the, the, the universality is just this kind of, like, modernist, like, rationalist, dualist kind of, um, shibboleth, right? I don't know, there's, there's a major incongruence here, isn't there? <laughs> Yeah, there's like there's a like in that scenario that uh, Graeber and Wenger are portraying. There's a kind of like assumed protocol there, where it's like there's a kind of like a protocol of hospitality, a protocol of like um, stewardship, right? Like that you will treat uh, the territory, or, or sorry, not the territory, but the land you are in. Um, roughly well enough that you could expect to come back to it and it would still be in the same condition and that other people could come there and they would expect it to be in like you know a, a reasonably good condition right that just like you know there's a there's a quid pro quo there of like we all we all act as stewards and that allows us to move around in this way um uh and and um it's not to say that the the people that Escobar is describing don't uh, adhere to that kind of stewardship principle. It's just that this notion of um, a tradition, a people, a place is absent from there. Yeah, right. Totally. Um, and I don't know. It it definitely it definitely raises some slight worries about the potential for like. I guess blood and soil kind of stuff, you know. Like there's a there's a fair bit of that in here, and like I don't know, there's there's Heidegger all over this too. So you gotta you gotta get your suspicions going. Um, in that, I, I mean, we covered this in the previous episode, but like uh, if if one is straining to make the most generous possible interpretations of weird blood and soil kind of stuff, like that strain is probably a sign that something is wrong, you know, with the whole thing. Um, Plus, I mean, these things, they, they, they fall out in the averages. It's not, it's not the best possible version of this, this thing that actually becomes real, you know? Um, but on the, on the, like, universalism and all that rationalism stuff, that's what the next chapter is kind of digging into. Um, chapter three, in the background of our culture, where he kind of really lays into the, um, the kind of uh, background radiation of Cartesian dualism and, and rationalism and all that kind of stuff that we're kind of steeped in. Um, which, yeah, I mean, I guess a lot of it will be kind of familiar to, to listeners of the show anyway. Um, so there's probably not much we can say about it. Um, he does start to then contrast that off against... Um, he actually brings in Maturana and Verea and some of our other favorite boys um, that, like, against the Cartesian dualism, in actual fact, cognition is enacted and embodied, you know, your, your kind of intelligence loop is Im embedded in the world. Um, you're not actually separate from the world in that kind of Cartesian sense. Um, and, you know, we need, we need to shift back to that kind of emphasis and, you know, relationality, you know, all, all the good stuff we've been talking about. Yeah. There's like a, there's like a paragraph here, uh, 
says um, uh, um, a clear represent a clear example of the shortcomings of this approach is the standard conceptualization of cognition as the representation by discrete mind of a pre-existing separate world. Uh, cognition as the manipulation of symbols. For, for Varela and colleagues, this is fundamentally mistaken. For them, rather, the rather than the representation of a pre-given world by a pre-given mind, cognition is the enactment of a world and a mind on the basis of a history of the variety of actions that a being in the world performs. When you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Mind is not separate from body, and both are not separate from the world. That is, from the ceaseless and always changing flow of existence that constitutes life. Or, can you really separate them out? By positing the notion of cognition as representation, we are all cut off from the stream of life in which we are ineluctably and immediately immersed as living beings. Um, and this is cognition as an action, as they describe it. Um, so yeah, like I, th I think that you know that's all pretty solid stuff. Um, there's a, there's some discussion of. Uh, um, the emotional dimension of rationality, right? Uh, that Maturana uh, comes up with, um, and uh, yeah, sort of discusses like uh, um, the ultimate conclusion drawn by Maturana and Varela is no less startling and equally foreign to modern logocentrism. We have only the world that we bring forth with others, and only love helps us bring it forth. The Buddhist notion of dependent co-arising, the complexity theory, concept of emergence, Maturana and Gerda Verdenzoller's biology of love, and the feminist emphasis on care and love agree with this view. Um, so yeah, like this, uh, I think like, you know, um, I would be interested to read more of this, like understand specifically what is meant by love here. Uh, but like, I think that that sort of like, uh, the non-dualism, the relationality, the foregrounding of care and love, I think are like all essential things um, to unfuck the world that we exist in right now because like um, it is it is the the insensitivity and the uh, <laughs> the lack or, or the the cold-heartedness that we hold towards the world that uh, is is a uh, on a sort of very regular basis, the thing that gets in the way of us actually like halting our activities. Um, Absolutely. And if, if I'm remembering my Maturana and Varea correctly, I think that the biology of love is, is that just the kind of um, the deep kind of togetherness of social beings and the kind of like deep sensuous embeddedness in the world, you know, um, it's kind of, a, it's like a nervous system thing, you know, it's like you're, deeply your kind of nervous system is deeply involved with other beings uh both both of your own species and all kinds of other things um so it's, it's a bit of a bit of a metaphorical kind of thing but um yeah i mean i, I think this all this is great you know and this is um there's echoes of the stuff we read in pickering as well here that like um yeah i think that the, this this stuff is all entirely necessary and it's again like i just don't and really buy that like embrace tradition is the way to get it you know, um, it's like, okay, I, I want this thing. It's like, I, I want to get the file extension, but if I was to try to get the last three characters of the file name, I would be going about it the wrong way, you know? Um, um, 
He goes over four fundamental beliefs in the modern onto-epistemic order, which are the belief in the individual, number one, uh, number two, the belief in the real, number three, the belief in science, and four, the belief in the economy. I don't know, his... It, of these, I think it's his kind of like, I don't know, anti-science stance is the one that rubs me the wrong way a little, you know? Um, yeah, we've, we've already sort of talked about the individualism issue, right? Like in the last episode where it, it's just like, like, okay, yes, but like you can push that argument too far, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> yes, relationality matters, but also like it, it doesn't efface the individual. I mean, obviously, like you get that even like in, in Maturana and Varela, like you know, obviously they understand like the notion of, of individuality and like homeostasis and, and, and survival and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's important. Um, but yeah, this point about, uh, science. Um, so the argument here, uh, that he makes is, um, the belief in the real is largely validated by an equally naturalized belief in the concept of science as the foundation of valid knowledge claims in modern societies. Besides the well-known discussions in modern social theory about the status of science, say from philosophical, the critique of epistemological realism, uh, feminism, fellow logocentrism, uh, and other post-structuralist perspectives, the politics of science-based truth claims, uh, there are lesser known currents that figure infrequently or too tangentially in the former set of analyses, for example, debates about indigenous, local, and traditional ecological knowledge, discussions about the geopolitics of knowledge and epistemic decolonization, concerns with cognitive justice, and so forth. Besides showing how the hegemony of modern knowledge works to make invis invisible other knowledges and ways of being, some of these tendencies highlight the links between hegemonic scientific practices and violence and oppression in non-Western contexts. Um, so... I mean, I feel like that is not really a strong argument against mm -hmm. science. Um, <laughs> it's like, okay, hegemonic scientific practices, yes, th those are absolutely a problem. Yes, they are involved in violence and oppression, but uh, that doesn't actually invalidate science. It's, uh, it's invalidating a way of doing science and a, a paradigm of science. There's this kind of slippery thing here where it's kind of slipping back and forth between science proper and the hegemonic order of science, you know, the or whatever. And like the, the kind of thing here is that like, I mean, if you, okay, you say, oh, science bad, whatever. And then I ask you why and you explain yourself, you're doing science. And like, you know, it's, and also plenty of these other, you know, cognitive, uh, these like epistemic frameworks are like basically scientific in the way they go about things. They're just not the hege hegemonic way of doing it, you know? And and also, like, in, even in the history of science and medicine, like, we have plenty of these examples of, like, I don't know, the guy who said that it would be a good idea to wash your hands before you do surgery got laughed out of the room and, like, died a pauper or whatever um, because of it. But, like, and, and so that's a case in which the hege hegemonic kind of, like, scientific consensus was totally wrong and in, in its, like, you know, scientific stance and wrong to inflict that kind of violence on him. But he was doing science, you know, like, and also when, when, when you come along and claim that, like, hey, I have a valid perspective that you should really listen to and consider for these reasons, especially because 
maybe my perspective will help us to survive on this planet. You're doing science, you know? Um, so... Yeah, and the, the, the problem is, like, often that um, the knowledge that someone is attempting to share can't be articulated in the scientific paradigm and and therefore is discarded that is a good critique here right that like that the, the hegemonic order of science whatever it's called does it sets the tone for like the format of dissent which can make it extremely hard to engage with even if i don't know if your your crazy perspective is that like we shouldn't burn down the fucking world you know but because you can't like phrase it in the the you know the which, which also that's a perfectly scientific fucking conclusion is that like if we keep doing this insane bullshit we're all gonna die you know that's that that's well within the parameters of science proper but like if you're not able to like phrase it in exactly the right way or get it published in the right journal then you're not part of like science or whatever like that's like that's a really that is that is a correct critique you know that like it yeah or like uh you know um say like people who suffer from a condition and know it far better than the medical researchers who are studying it and have like a um a social grouping of knowledge to like share among sufferers like you know symptoms uh ways to deal with it all this kind of stuff and it's all invalidated because it doesn't come through the proper channels or isn't articulated in the right language of science um that is like a perfectly valid critique of the way science is done um yeah obviously uh i like you know i mean i've certainly been there and just shake in my head at the stupidity of the system um uh and um again i i just don't think it invalidates the principles behind science like the most worrying thing i've seen recently is um sort of like recent research that's called into question the actual efficacy of peer review um and uh i think that <sighs> Like I need to look into it more in terms of like, like both reread the paper and like also like consider it more deeply. But like, um, when you get to sort of like foundational practices in modern science and like point out that like actually these aren't really that effective, um, that is to me a more challenging. Uh, critique of science as such than uh, like oh science is like really insensitive to these important dimensions of reality because um, then it's just a matter of like oh, okay well clearly we need to rethink our ontology and then we can have better science which is not a, it doesn't fundamentally challenge uh, what science is about mm -hmm. yeah indeed um the, the next section is issues and problems with ontological dualism, which, again, I think a lot of the audience are going to be familiar with. However, the, there was one bit here that stood out to me, because um, um, he's quoting, I think, Mario Blasser um, with his three-layered definition of ontology. Basically, layer one is like the inventory of objects, 
Uh, layer two is their kind of enactment, their like, you know, ongoing enactment. And then layer three is the stories, the narrative layer of ontology. Um, and I think that that gets to my sort of thing of like, um, the, the way that like a lot of these, um, Basically, I don't know, whenever anyone's present, presenting with you with a narrative, you should always be a little bit suspicious, you know, because, like, uh, nar narrative is often the kind of backward justification for whatever bullshit we happen to be doing. Um, but throughout this throughout this book, um, Escobar kind of just, I guess, takes a lot of stuff at face value with, like, narratives about, like, this or that, you know, indigenous culture claims to be the, like, custodians of the mother spirit or whatever, and, and that sort of thing, and it's like... I think he could do with a little bit more, you know, of a kind of cynical, you know, lens to look at that kind of stuff through. Because if it's if it's fair to uh, criticize ontological dualism for its like narrative bullshitting layer, which I I fully agree with, it should be hammered to death for that. I think it's also fair to take that same critical lens to any ontology that's proposed. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, like. Again, it's just sort of a matter of like not uh, holding uh, inherent dismissiveness or cynicism, but also like yeah, not taking what you're told at face value. Um, because why would you do that in any like why would you be credulous in any social context? <laughs> I guess it's like it's like it's, it doesn't seem like a good way of operating. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean. The section is, it just has a lot of the usual kind of stuff, right? That like, you know, that also that like dualism, ontological dualism also kind of births these other perversities, like these um, splittings of nature versus culture, us versus them, subject versus object. And we, we live we live in the world that is typified by all this kind of perversity of reason. Um, yes, and it, it, it tends to be like uh, self-reinforcing. Mm -hmm. And... Part of what the author is then suggesting here is, like, in order to correct the balance a little, um, we need the kind of return of the repressed, that, like, the, the repressed side of this, of each of these pairs, um, we need to kind of work on, you know, bringing these up a bit. So, um, you know, what, what was it again? So, uh, nature, them, and the, the object <laughs> need, to, <laughs> need to come back on the stage um, and reassert themselves. Yeah, uh, there's also um, uh, this decent uh, like point here that is made about um, uh, dialogue. Um, uh, it says, uh, uh, Nandi insists on the need to take an <clears throat> into account the visions of the weak and their notions of a good society and a desirable world. For Nandi, this has to be done by bearing in mind that their apparent inability to withstand analytical thought and their defensiveness and diffidence in the face of Cartesian categories all contribute to their undervaluation. Here, Nandi spells out one of the most intractable and damaging expectations of institutionalized dualist thinking. There is a pecking order of cultures in our times which involves every dialogue of cultures, visions, and faiths, and which tries to force the dialogue to serve the needs of the modern West and its extensions within the non-West. 
Under every dialogue of visions lies a hidden dialogue of unequals. A culture with a developed assertive language of dialogue often dominates the process of dialogue and uses the dialogue to cannibalize the culture with a low-key muted softer language of dialogue. The encounter then predictively yields a discourse which reduces the second culture to a special case, an earlier stage, or a simplified vision of the culture with the assertive language of dialogue. Um, yeah, I, I, like I think that's a that's a pretty valid point in terms of um, like intercultural dialogue not necessarily always being a good thing, right? Because if the dialogue is like highly stacked in favor of one culture over the other, um, then you can very much like give the appearance of care and understanding while also like not substantially uh, improving anything. <laughs> um, and I think that, that, you know, that kind of just, it's not just a cultural thing. It kind of goes for like any oppressed group really. Um, uh, but I, I, I've seen this like when I was uh, a student in Japan and I was in like seminars that were run in English, um, I could speak on and on and, assert, and make authoritative statements about things and et cetera, et cetera. And the Japanese students were very quiet. And I would go to a seminar that was run in Japanese, and I would be the quiet one who couldn't really assert my points um, and just get me kind of like run roughshod over. Um, and it's it's like it's just the power dynamic of like the dialogue, right? Um, so, you know, this also goes for if we are like a group that is disempowered and are dealing with the scientific establishment and can't articulate what we need to articulate in that like language of power. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, um, yeah, this, this thing here just kind of reminds me of, I guess, the, um, the Lozengotri thing of like, like royal culture and minor cultures and the sort of the way that the, the minor, the minor term needs to like find an escape route. Um, or a way of breaking through um, that can that can like upset the balance. Um. Yeah, and and like um, I guess yeah, you know, over the past few years, like I've I've had a much greater understanding, come to a much greater understanding through the through science to a large extent, thankfully, uh, of uh, of like the various disabilities I have and trying to inter interact with um, institutions from the perspective of a disabled person being a disabled person. Um, you know, it's very tangible the way in which like this dynamic is a real problem um, where it's like you can, you can have like a dialogue about your disability without actually receiving anything valuable out of it <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah but th that's such a that's such an interesting um it's such an interesting kind of point of emphasis there that like it, whether it's disability or like trans stuff or whatever like we we're, we're, we're kind of doing a science on ourselves and we're we're kind of like using reason and evidence and all this kind of stuff to like develop ourselves and then to challenge power it's it's not that 
we just have a kind of miraculous inbuilt understanding of ourselves. Uh, absolutely we, not. No. <laughs> which, which, which is I, unfortunately kind of it's it's the thing that's sort of implicitly presented I, either in this book or in just in a lot of stuff that feels like it, where the um, this 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 other subject just has this kind of like divine inbuilt full understanding of themselves and they just like really struggle to get out from under the heel of science or whatever. And it's not, I don't think it's really the case at all. Like it's that, you know, like you, if, if you're, if you're over time developing an understanding of yourself and, a, and your situation based on your experience and the evidence and like a tally of the evidence over time and like compression of common experience into like abstractions or whatever, like the fact that we can refer to ourselves as being neurodiver neurodivergent or trans or whatever, that's a scientific process and it's a group scientific process. And just because it's like, it's not the royal science and we do have to challenge the royal science, that doesn't make it non-scientific. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Because like, um, yeah, being oppressed in the sense of being disabled didn't in any sense like... Like a, a realizing that I belong to that category of oppression uh, didn't in any way make me like less interested in the scientific dimension of my disabilities, <laughs> right? Like it's, it makes me it made me more interested in like understanding like well okay but like like you know what are what are the peculiarities of these which are the ones that are not actually like acknowledged by the medical establishment and. Uh, you know, what are the ways in which, like, this sort of fits within a social model of disability, right? Um, but it it didn't, it, it made me, it gave me a more antagonistic relationship to doctors and psychiatry as institutions, although, like, I have had good interactions with particular ones, um, but uh, it didn't, like, make me hostile to a scientific understanding of my condition and like oh i like because before i had any scientific understanding like one i couldn't get any medication for my condition but two it was like i only sort of was like vaguely aware of the existence of any of these problems and like attributed them to things that like I misattributed them to things that like weren't really related to what was going on. Uh, and so it's like having a better understanding feels empowering. It doesn't feel like, Oh no, now I'm within the totalitarian matrix of scientific knowledge. And like, I, I can't possibly escape yada yada. Like, yeah, it's like, I understand that like these definitions of the disabilities that I have are provisional and like represent a particular stage of understanding you know my weird neurodivergences but like that's just that's just like a basic point of science that like oh yeah these aren't definitive because we we never have a definitive understanding of these things <laughs> um it doesn't mean they're useless <laughs> mm -hmm. well, it doesn't it certainly doesn't mean that the process is uh, is useless you know it's like I, I hope people in the future can look back at us and laugh at how dumb we were about this stuff, but that's because they've done a lot better, you know? Um, I think it would be really silly to throw everything out, you know, um, because of that. 
I guess the chapter then kind of closes out and it's, it's a long kind of rambling spiel about like the, the need to overcome these these binaries and to um, restore balance in the force and that kind of stuff um, and that you know we're kind of um, it does it does pick up on the Dillas and Guattari thing of like yeah we're we're kind of talking in binaries for the sake of non-binary sake you know it's um we we want to melt down these binaries but it turns out that the only way we can really talk about them is in these binary terms for the moment um, so we, we we can we can talk about dualism and non-dualism and it's there's a certain irony in it being a binary but like we would really quite like to melt all that down um yeah um chapter four then is the outline of ontological design which i recall being quite a good chapter um oh this beginning part though fuck this part oh this that this is I, I cringed so hard I nearly fucking choked on my, my own tongue. It was it was horrible. <laughs> it's like uh the, the chapter starts by um uh this the, you know uh, uh Escobar uh, uh addressing the reader in the second person like so you are holding a digital device in your hand maybe even while you read these pages do you know what it is? How it unslash does you in particular ways. How it unslash does the world. Here is American rapper Prince Ia's passionate plea that we think about it deeply. One might say ontologically. Do, do not read. Do not read it out. I'm going to cut your mic. <laughs> I will not read it out, but I will. I will. I will highlight the part that made me just like write in my notes like "fuck you." Uh, <laughs> is uh the line here um chats have become reduced to snaps the news is 140 characters videos of six seconds at high speed and you wonder why add is on the rise faster than 4g lte and it's like fuck you like no my 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 adh like first of all nobody uses the term add anymore (laughs) and second of all my ADHD is definitely not engendered by phones. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's not the 5G that has like magnetized my brain and caused me to um, uh, develop ADHD uh, or autism. Uh, it is actually, uh, I could go back and document the history of this in my family that goes back generations. And whether... Um, the phones, smartphones existed or not. Uh, like I, I think there's certainly uh, arguments to be made that like uh, some of these technologies can be further disabling, but uh, that's not the point that's being made here. It's like ADHD would not exist without the smartphone, which is like, no, fuck you, no. Um, I mean, you mentioned it in the green room, but like it has such powerful vibes of like autism mom on Facebook, like blaming technology and like chemtrails for making her kid autistic or whatever, you know? Exactly. Yes. It's it's just like we, we run into this shit all the time and like get this out of, out of academic discussion. I don't, I have no, I have no time for it. (laughs) And like, yeah, I mean, it probably has some impact on executive function in in that, like, it's a hyperstimulus, but, like, it clearly isn't the origin point of the fucking thing. There's actually, um, it's, it's not a book I ever got around to reading, but I was just really impressed with the title when I was kind of getting accustomed to my ADHD diagnosis that, um, I think the book was either titled or subtitled, um, what was it? It was, 
living as a hunter in a farmer's world. And that, I think that kind of gets to something that's probably, I think probably, it's, it's a solid lead on what this stuff is, is that like they're, um, as, as um, Arnold on Fight Like an Animal kind of goes on about, they're just, there's a lot of huge variation in like brain architecture and like cognitive processing and like the way that human beings engage with the world. And we do seem to bucket into a couple of different archetypes. And it, it probably is that like, as, as old as human beings have ever been, there just have been different kind of brains around. And it made a lot of sense for the species to specialize in that some units really quite like being asleep at night and some really quite prefer to stay up and keep an eye out for tigers, you know? Um, and that's, you know, I think, I think we're probably remnants of like the hunter brain plan that unfortunately now live in a, a farmer's world, you know? Yeah, the the only thing that really makes me think that 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 hypothesis doesn't hold water is the fact that like my um my dyspraxia is a comorbidity with my ADHD, which would make me a very bad hunter because uh, I'm so clumsy. <laughs> uh, so it, it, there's a I, I think there's probably something there like that you know these traits have been adaptive in some sense over time like these have continued on for generations and generations and generations untold and they haven't died out right um and there's a certain amount of like neurodiversity that has just been like retained within the human species um and it may have something to do with you know like it may be adaptive in some ways to being a hunter or like, you know, the way they say that like, oh, lots of like brilliant generals have had ADHD, right? And like probably, um, uh, but uh, yeah, I, I just don't know. Cause I mean, that's, that's, that's the, whenever we, whenever I see that discussion, I'm always like, yeah, but like, I'm so fucking clumsy. Like I, without my meds, like I, like, you know, just the other week, like I was, I ran out of my, my ADHD meds and I didn't realize like how clumsy I was without them. And I was just sort of like walking across the street as I normally would. And like, I just like basically tripped over my own feet and like fell and like shredded up my hands and oh, knees. No, and like, and, and I was like, damn, like I eat like without my medication, like I even need to like pay more attention just to walking because I'm so bad at <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just, it's not that, like, I couldn't walk, obviously. It's that, like, the level of attention I needed to pay to walking was, like, had gone, like, uncalibrated. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think it might not, maybe hunter is too strong a term for it, but I, it does seem to be a kind of hypervigilance. And I think I've noticed is that people with ADHD tend, seem to, spot problems coming a lot sooner then and it's like you know, they'll just be like that wall's gonna fall down and everyone else is like no no way and he's like no i'm fucking telling you that's about to fall down you know yeah. and then it does yeah. and it's like yeah anyway that sort of thing um which you can see why that would be adaptive you know to have a couple have a couple of weirdos around who are just weirdly good at sensing trouble um even if even if it totally fucks up the rest of their lives, uh, you know. Uh, but yeah. So the, anyway, the point here being like maybe you know um, Escobar and Prince Ia could like actually do with studying some science to quit uh, oppressing uh, our uh, 
category of marginalization. Um, and, you know, I, I would be all for that. And instead of just like <sighs> repeating like folk knowledge about, um, yeah, aren't like, sitting too close to the TV gave, gave my kid autism or whatever like this. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, do you, do you think maybe this, so this thing was published in 2017 and do you think maybe some of this stuff seems a little less cute now after the COVID pandemic? Well, not after COVID, but like during it, you know, where the, the weird anti-vax shit like is. Yeah, absolutely. You know, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think everything that's happened during the pandemic has provided uh, many compelling arguments for why uh, the why uh, Escobar's um, very sort of like one sided presentation of these questions uh, is like there's 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 so many ways in which like not like willfully ignoring science for reasons of like cultural relatedness um, is deeply oppressive to uh, marginalized people. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but like this chapter is in many ways quite a bit of the meat of the book. And it's kind of about, um, I mean, after getting past the fucking horrible rap shit at the start, but like um, the need to like critically reevaluate design and technology because of the ways of being it produces or that the ways of being it's involved with. Um, and it's a little bit frustrating because in, in one sense, he sort of gets closer towards a kind of materialist kind of analysis, I guess, that like the, the system, the system of capital and it's like techno integration circuit is, you know, something that alters the way we be and des design as a process has been and is now involved in that techno-integration circuit. Um, and I guess it's fair to implore design professionals to think a bit fucking harder about what they're doing, you know, when they're, what ontologies they're creating when designing. Um, but I, I have, I have doubts about the power of imploring really as a, as a praxis, but, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, like, you know, um, I think it, it there's a certain amount of value to bringing up these concerns to designers. Like, for instance, um, something I was very much not uh, happy to hear about was that, like, um, in order to save on costs, a lot of like car manufacturers are replacing like their dashboards with just like one big wraparound screen. Uh, because if you don't have like the sort of like plastic uh, uh, hood elements uh, or dash elements that like go around the screens that you would integrate in there and you just do like one big long screen that goes across the whole thing, uh, then it's just one big LCD panel. Like, yeah, it's, it's like way, way simpler, way cheaper to produce. Right. Um, and people think it looks cool because it's like, you know, wow, it's like this one big like massive screen with all these fancy animations and stuff. And I was like, you know, looking at that as somebody with ADHD, it's like, oh yeah, like that, 
is like a serious hazard to me and everyone around me if also, I'm driving this car. When you get ads on the dashboard, which will definitely happen. <laughs> yeah, like this this will very likely cause me to injure or kill somebody, and this is not okay, right? Um, so like when you when you look at like yeah like you know the sort of there's like a kind of majoritarian argument for that kind of design in the sense that like well it's cheaper for everyone and also it looks cool to most people um but like you know if you get outside of that very narrow um design paradigm uh and actually consider the consequences of it um like even people who don't have ADHD probably don't want to get run over. Um, uh, then it doesn't make any sense. So, I mean, I think that like, you know, this kind of imploring and bringing up to designers has a certain amount of value to just like raise awareness about, yeah, maybe your ontology should be broader. Maybe you should think um, beyond just like, faster faster cheaper cheaper uh fancier fancier all the time uh without any consideration i guess like i'm i, I think i'm maybe just um i think for all this to be effective it would need to be imported into a kind of marxist beerian revolutionary current i'm, I'm much more yeah. impressed with like beers like revolutionary praxis of design or whatever you know and science for the people as a, as a sort of general starting point yes yes yeah no a hundred percent a hundred percent um because like he d direct confrontation with capital is a thing in his in his framework right like um yeah and and like this does have a lot of maturana and varela in it but it, it fundamentally seems to be starting from like heidegger's question concerning technology like he cites it at the beginning of this chapter and um yeah i think that the presumption that like people's ontological relationship to technological practice is like the source of all ills in our world um is just like too limited like it's it's not a it's not a strong enough perspective um even though like there's some truth to all of those things that are being said there definitely is right like i mean it's it's a fun chapter to read because there is a lot of stuff you can just nod along with, right? Like that, the, the technology and its design as like world creation and as like embedded intelligence that like you know alters the world. But like, it's um, I think we could we could kind of bring back some Feinberg here, where like the, the the question is like you have to step up a level as like who controls the. What the fuck was the term in Feinberg? The technical code. The technical code, right? Because like yeah, sure, a designer designs that fucking shitty dashboard or whatever, but they're doing it under instruction with like a kind of metaphorical gun to their head of the wage relation, you know? Um, and so it's, it's not entire, it's not true to say that like the designer, the designer like creates this world by doing this design act. It's that capital and the wage relation creates this hideous world. And it's the, it's the, the thing that pulls the strings of the, uh, the technical code that's directing the process and the designer is kind of a cog in, a, in, a, in, the, in the chain there. And like, so it's, it's not untrue as such, but it needs this, and it's not an accident that like Feinberg's whole thing was post Heidegger sort of stuff of like, 
recognizing those limitations and then stepping up the ladder to get to a, a better perspective. Like, I think I think this guy could do with reading some Fiendberg, you know? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, 100%. Um, 100%. So, like, a lot of the actual content here is, like, not even that objectionable. It's just incomplete in that sense, right? Um, and it, it, it seems to misidentify the the root of the problem. Um, yeah, it, I mean, ironically, it's like there isn't actually enough like diversity in the understanding <laughs> of the problem. <laughs> like, it, it's not plural enough. <laughs> it's like too. It's, it's all too one note. It's too modern, you know. It's too monocausal. So yeah, it's it's like a. Oh, stung. <laughs> yeah. <Burn>. Yeah. <laughs> General Intellect Unit. While you wait for the next episode, you can follow us on Twitter at GIUnitPod. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on the internet at GeneralIntellectUnit.net. And you can find us on all the podcast apps. So like, rate, and subscribe. If you go to patreon.com slash GeneralIntellectUnit, you can throw us a couple of bucks a month to help the show and to get access to our community discord. This show is part of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast network and research collective. Go to emancipation.network and check out our sister shows such as Swampside Chats, From Alpha to Omega, Mortal Science, and Jumpsuit Utopia. They are all excellent shows and excellent folks. As always, thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Bye.